Welcome to the Center Point Pentecostal Church Podcast. We hope that this podcast finds you well and that you are ready for a life-changing message from one of our outstanding and anointed ministers. If you like this podcast, please be sure to give us a follow and a five-star review on your favorite podcasting app. Now let's get to today's message. So the year is 970 BCE. King David, a lowly shepherd boy turned mighty king, has now passed from this life into the next, and the throne of Israel now being succeeded by another. This new king's name was King Solomon, the second son of David and Bathsheba. Solomon Solomon would be known throughout biblical history for three things. One, he was a man that God blessed with great wisdom. Two, he would be a king responsible for finally building the permanent housing place for the Ark of the Covenant and the Spirit of God. He would build the temple. And number three, he was the last king of a unified Israel. Upon his death, Israel would be broken into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And when we play word association with King Solomon... We often go, well, he was a man and a king of great wisdom. Maybe we think about the man that orchestrated the building of God's temple, but we don't often think about the man that took pagan wives or set up altars in high places to the gods of Asherah and Baal, the man, the king that legalized the worship of these false gods, or the one that under his rule, kingdom would be torn asunder and fall down the path of division and separation. We don't don't think about that. And while indeed he was a gifted man, anointed by God himself with great wisdom, he was not an obedient man. And he is a constant reminder that just because you have God's giftings and anointing does not mean you have God's approval and affirmation. You can be used, you can preach, and a hundred people get the Holy Ghost and be an awful person. I remember one time I I was in an event between here and there, and, and the individual was ministering, and it was a, a powerful sermon and a powerful service. And I remember it wasn't until after the fact that it kind of came out that he was involved in things that he shouldn't have been involved in. And I remember having a conversation with my wife and some close friends, and I said, why, how is it that God can allow someone participating in what this individual was participating in be used in the way that he was used. It makes no sense to me. But it was when God gave me clarity and said the using of an individual is not for the person being used, it's for the person the using is for. So if a, if a person is preaching the gospel to a group of 100 people who need the gospel, it does God no good to let that preacher fall on his face at the expense of the 100 people that needed the gospel so that preacher could get what was coming to him. You can be on a platform and you can sing and you can sign and you can play and you can even preach, you could even lead and still be on your way to hell. Because God's ability to use you is not for your own affirmation, it is a testament of his grace and his love for the people you're interacting with. And it's in my reading of Solomon and the building of God's temple where I noticed something that stuck out to me in the scripture. 
In Exodus 16 and 33, it says, And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot of an omer full of manna therein, lay it up between the Lord, and keep it for generations. Numbers 17 and 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept as a token against the rebels, and thou shalt quite take away their murmuring. In Hebrews 9 and 4, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round with gold, wherein, so inside of the Ark of the Covenant, was the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tables of the covenant of the Ten Commandments. So within the Ark of the Covenant was the budding rod of Aaron, a single pot of manna, and those precious Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments representing the Word of God. The budding rod of Aaron, be, Aaron being a representation of the authority and the ministry of that word of God. And the pot of manna being a representation of the supernatural demonstration, provision, and power of God. These three items being representative of foreshadowing of what a vessel of the Holy Spirit was meant to contain. The word of God, the ministry of that word, and supernatural demonstration to confirm that word. But we see something interesting and troubling when you read through the pages of 1 Kings. Upon the completion of the temple, we see 1 Kings 8 and 9. And there was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone which Moses put there in Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel as they came out of the land of Egypt. This verse tells us that when the ark of the covenant is placed into the temple, it was missing two very important ingredients. We see no mention of Aaron's rod or the single pot of manna. We see no representation of spiritual authority and ministry, nor supernatural demonstration in provision. And that is what I want to talk to this wonderful group of people about tonight is abandoned rods and missing manna. Now, before I go any further... My message tonight is in no way meant to discourage or discount or discredit the law and the word of God. I believe that we as the church, while not under Old Testament Mosaic law, we are still subject to the word and the law of God. We are still commanded to be holy people. We are still commanded to be called out in peculiar people following the teachings and the directives and the charges of Jesus and his apostles. See, Paul teaches us about the value of the law, the word of God, when he says, what shall we say then? Is law sin? God forbid, nay, I have known not sin, but by the law. For I had known not lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Paul equates the Old Testament law to a babysitter that says, we didn't even know what sin was without the law. The law came from God, it was not man, and it was given for the good purposes that God gave it. And while Paul rejects that a step-by-step -step following of the law will automatically lead to salvation, he absolutely upholds the law as the moral standard and teacher. The law of God revealing the nature, the existence, the power, and the result of sin. It shows man's sinful nature in our desperate need for salvation. The law shows us how far off from being who we're supposed to be we really are. Without the law of God, there is no way to identify sin. When I was a youth pastor, the number one question you would get asked, and some of the youth pastors in here could probably tell you, is, well, if Adam and Eve weren't supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then why did God put it there? Also, what kind of fruit was it? Because I don't want to eat it. 
I don't like apples. And if it's an apple, I'm not going to eat an apple ever again. The reason is very simple. Because at some point, if I don't give you a secondary option, there is no free will. And so people ask, they say, well, what kind of fruit was it? Because I want to make sure I don't eat it. What was, what was the significance of the fruit? I don't know. I have no, my, my theological thought is it was, I don't know, like a, a berry. I don't know. It really doesn't matter. Because in that moment, the fruit did not have magical powers. What that showed them was what is right, right and what is wrong. Obeying God is right. And disobedience is wrong. It, it could have been a stream of the knowledge of good and evil. And God could have said, do not take a stroll through the lazy waters of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they would have done it, it wasn't magical water. It was the principle that what God says is right and disobedience is wrong. And this is what the law of God teaches us. The law, the commandments of God being like a string on a kite. It doesn't hold the kite back. It holds the kite up. The word, the law of God still being established today. Jesus himself saying he came to fulfill the law. One thing I would just, I'm going to interject this. This is more like, you know, old school youth pastor right now. One thing I would encourage you to do when you go home, because something that will always trip you up, is whenever people ask, well, how do we know which Old Testament laws are still valid and which ones aren't? I want you, I'm giving you homework. I want you to go home and study the three levels of, of Old Testament Mosaic law. You had civil law, which is the law and how we interact with each other. There was ceremonial law. The law that had to do with making ourselves clean so that we can enter into the presence of God. And there was moral law. Civil law and, moral, uh, civil law and ceremonial law were addressed by Jesus. Because the law surely says that if a man strikes you, you can strike him back. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But surely I say, if a man strikes you, turn the other cheek. Civil law. Ceremonial law. Do not deem what I have cleaned as unclean. Rise and eat. There is no more need for ceremonial law because on Calvary, he has made us clean, becoming the ultimate sacrifice for sin. However, moral law, moral law never changes. See, moral law, you'll see all throughout the New Testament. And so we need to make sure we understand that the law of God is important even today. The word of God, we must know the word. We must hide the word in our heart. Don't, don't, don't listen to the lie that says it doesn't matter how you talk. It doesn't matter how you walk. It doesn't matter how you look. It still matters. God's word is clear. And this is New Testament. We are to abstain from the works of the flesh, being sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, drunkenness, envy, and things like this. Begarret the kingdom of God. God's word has not changed. We must still be holy people, seeking to fulfill the word and the work of God. See, if we only focus on being used of God and seeking signs and we totally abandon God's law and his commandments, we'll find ourselves standing before the many with God that we see in Matthew 7 where he says, Not every one of you that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out devils in your name? Have we not done many, many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. 
That word iniquity means lawlessness. The worker of lawlessness. And this is something Solomon obviously understood was the value and the importance of the law and the word of God. But I, I believe where Solomon missed it would contribute to his downfall. See, while the Ten Commandments are precious and we can't ignore the law and the word of God, we also cannot demean the need for the budding rod of Aaron or the single pot of manna. See, Solomon focused solely on the law of God, but he neglected the ministry of that word and the supernatural demonstration. And because of this, Israel would find itself mirroring the approach of the pagans where their worship was no longer from the heart but out of ritual. And while they focused exclusively on following the law of God, somewhere along the way they abandoned the rod and they misplaced the manna. And if we're not careful, we can build beautiful temples in which we house the law of God, but we fail to allow for the ministry of the word and the lack of supernatural demonstration. And when we get away from the ministry of the word and the awe of the miraculous, we take the presence of God and we confine it to a temple. And no matter how beautiful that temple may be, we, just like Solomon, will fall. And again, don't misunderstand me. God's word is infallible. It is invaluable. It is irreplaceable. But hear me, when we fail to minister that word and live by that word, we have the power to render it irrelevant and powerless in our own lives. Now I know this may sound sacrilegious and it may sound abrupt, but it's true. See, the word of God is a constant. See, I have a friend, his name is Matt, and uh, he's a beast. So he's like an eighth degree black belt in Taekwondo. He goes to like South Korea like every two years and trains with like, I don't know, like Master Splinter or whatever. <laughs> he like, like my father-in-law's back there. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. My boy would just randomly post on Instagram like I'm in Guatemala. And I'm like, how are you in Guatemala? Like how did that happen? He just hops on a bird. And he maybe swims because he's, he's an animal, an absolute animal. But. He, his hands and his feet, this is no joke, in the state of Louisiana are literally registered weapons with the state because they have to be. Dog. Absolute dog. And you'd have no clue. Like, no clue. Like, super, he like makes cooking videos on TikTok. Not even joking. Um, but the reality is if Matt was here and something popped off, Right? And he just sat in the back with his hands in his pockets and never engaged. He never operated in what it was he was trained to operate in. He's no more useful than I am. And I can promise you, if something pops off, I'm not useful. P7 stuff can stay right back there. My truck's right out here. Woo! Gone. Buddy, gone. Right? In like manner, the Bible is compared to a two-edged sword. And if we have a sword, no matter how sharp or powerful it may be, if it stays within the sheath and is never drawn during battle... It is of no consequence how sharp that sword is. When we fail to go beyond just knowing the word and we never activate the word in our own lives, becoming true ministers of that word, and then seeing that word be, be confirmed through the working of miracle signs and wonders, though the word is constant and powerful, we render it irrelevant. You see, this concept is found with other things throughout Scripture in James 2. James says, what doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he has faith and has not works? 
Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute for daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart, be in peace, and be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them none of the things that they need. What does it profit? Even so, faith without works is dead. Faith is a constant, a spiritual element that all of us possess. Even, even the staunchest atheist will believe and have some level of faith, because if you sit down on a chair, you believe you're not going to float to the sky. Jesus himself said that if we have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, we can speak to mountains and see them cast into the sea. Faith is powerful. Faith is mighty. Faith is commanding. But according to the scripture, not me, faith without works is dead. And so too is the word of God in your life. Because it's not enough to know the word, but we must be ministers of that word. And that ministry must be validated through the operation of the spirit. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners trapped in our own filth and mess, that Christ died because he loved us. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. The word of God tells us that he gave us life and not just life, but life more abundant. The Bible says, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. The Bible the Bible tells us that he's a healer and a miracle worker. He can cleanse captives. He can, he can deliver those that are bound by drugs and alcohol and addiction. He can restore the broken. Those of you that are in this building, you know that. You hold on to that. You cling to that. But do your schoolmates know that? It is an amazing experience to gather together with believers and celebrate the freedom we've been given. But it is a whole nother experience to take the freedom we've been given and bring it to someone who has none. We are not being called out strictly to uphold the word. But we are being called to be ministers of that word, meaning to participate in the operation of the Spirit. See, something has gotten into the modern church where we're very quick to remind those we're connected with what the Bible says, but we're not as quick to minister the way the Bible says to minister. We use the Bible as a way to win arguments, not win souls. Can I just give you a side note? If someone doesn't believe in the Bible, you quoting them scripture to prove why you're right and they're wrong, is irrelevant. <laughs> like, okay, like, some of y'all don't, like, you don't believe the Quran is real, right? Like, you might not believe the Quran is a div divine word of God. So if someone's like, well, I know you believe that, but you know the Quran says this, you'd be like, oh man, like, I appreciate your culture, and like, that's awesome, but like, I don't, I don't believe that. But yeah, when somebody's like, I believe this, we're like, no, you're wrong, and this is what my Bible says that you don't believe in. They're like, that's cool. <laughs> Because we're trying to use the word outside of the ministry of the word. And so something has gotten within the church that we're very quick to tell people what the Bible says, but we don't actually operate the way the Bible says to operate. In Deuteronomy 6, Israel was commanded to inscribe prayers and scriptures above the doorposts of their home. This was called the mezuzah. And it said that its purpose was singular, in which that anyone that would pass by their house would be able to see declarations of God's goodness, his power, and his sovereignty. Not, <laughs> I'm getting in trouble. I feel uncomfortable, which is a problem. I don't read anywhere in the scripture where they inscribe political views in the doorposts of their home. 
I don't see anywhere in the scripture where they went back and forth writing on each other's doorposts, arguing whether or not Israel should adopt a more socialistic or capitalistic economic structure. I just don't see it in scripture. I can't find anywhere where the doorposts of their home were used to passive-aggressively tear others down or demean others. I see only one purpose in Scripture, and that was to declare the Word of God to anyone even passing by their home. Now, we don't inscribe things on our doorposts. Maybe like some of you like hang like Hobby Lobby signs above your doorposts, like bless this nest or whatever, but first coffee, whatever, I don't know. Now, we don't do that. However, instead, we write down our thoughts, every thought, in these little devices that some of you have in your pocket or your purse. And it's not only your neighbors that can see what it is you're saying, it's people potentially thousands of miles away that you will never have a personal interaction with. Listen, social media allows for zero nuance. Don't try to have nuanced conversation on social media. My question is very simple. Can the people that are around you see what your home stands for? If I shadowed you for a day, observed your phone conversations, perused your social media accounts, would I see someone that's upholding the law of God, someone being a minister of the word of God, someone in pursuit of God operating in supernatural ways, or would I find someone that's more concerned with trying to make this country what we think it's supposed to be, rather than try to build and fill the kingdom? See, I I believe the church stands up for righteousness. I, I really do. I believe we abhor what's evil. We do our very best to battle and push back the spirit of darkness, the, the wickedness. I, I, I believe that. But at some point, we have to check our heart. Are we more focused on trying to convince others that our viewpoints are the only ones that could possibly be right? While using a scripture we don't actually read to argue with people we don't actually care about. I don't merely want to parade the word. This word of God is precious. There are, I, 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 was, I was able to connect with a missionary in the Ukraine last October, and we've been kind of keeping up with him through all of this. The stories this man would tell me where they have to, they have to hide pages of the Bible in honeycombs. They have to, if, if you're caught with a page of the Bible, they'll, they'll flog you in the street and you'll get life in prison. How precious this word is. For some of us, for me at times, to have the audacity to use it as a way to bolster my premeditated opinion about what I think it says. And this isn't, I'm not, again, not at you. I'm with you. I can't, I can't tell you how many times, especially when I was younger, when I would use this precious, precious word of God to destroy instead of build life. Because I'm argumentative in nature. I'll argue stuff I don't even believe just because I like doing it. <laughs> like, legit. But see, while people in the church argue and we fight and we bicker about, honestly, stuff that doesn't have any eternal value, people die lost every day. Every day, people are dying lost. I do believe the church is a place where we stand for what is good and what is godly. 
We do all we can to uphold the word of God, but at some point we have to wake up and remember that the kingdom we are building is not of brick and mortar. The kingdom that we are building is not cities, states, or countries, but this kingdom we are tasked to build is not an earthly kingdom, but it is a kingdom of eternal value. And God help me if I care more about winning arguments than winning souls. We can't abandon the ministry of the word and the operation of his spirit. In Jonah 1 and 2, it tells us, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because its wickedness has come before me. And too many of us are trying to determine who is worthy of being ministered to. God acknowledges Nineveh's wickedness. He never says Nineveh is not that bad. He acknowledges Nineveh is wicked. But it was never Jonah's place to determine whether Nineveh was worthy of ministry. He attempted to be the judge of who is worthy of this ministry. And a lot of us know how that turned out if you don't read the story of Jonah. Or watch the VeggieTales movie. There's that song, God of Second Chances. Slaps super hard. Like, if, like it hits so hard. Banger. Yeah, y'all, go watch it. Go listen to it. You go, you're like, that was a banger. See, in Jonah 3, we read that eventually Jonah did make his way to Nineveh. And the Bible says... That he preached the word and something amazing happened. God did exactly what God said he would do. The Bible says that they believed God's word, proclaimed a fast, and they turned away from their wickedness and they repented unto God. And the Bible says in Jonah 3 and 10, and God saw their works that they turned away from their evil. And God repented for the evil and that he said he would do to him and he did it not. See, the politicians could not save Nineveh. The education system could not save Nineveh. All the social media posts and grassroots campaigns could not save Nineveh. But what saved Nineveh was the ministry of the word of God. What we are wrestling is not flesh and blood. What we are fighting against is not flesh and blood. The people that you interact with that maybe you disagree with, that you feel are, are trying to pull things in a direction that you don't think is right, they are not the enemy. They are bound. Just like some of you, and just like me, it is only by the grace of God that I get to stand here and even proclaim that there is another option. It was the ministry of the word that saved Nineveh. And see, the devil knows the power that comes from men and women committing themselves to the ministry of the word and the operation of the spirit. That's why he wants to take advantage of your love and your respect for the word of God and twist it and abuse it. He desires to make you believe that you can argue your way to change. You can debate your way to change. You can post your way to change. But in reality, the first generation apostolic church shook their world upside down, turning government on its head. And how did they do it? Acts tells us they gave themselves continuously to prayer and the ministry of the word. See, the world does need a change, but not by worldly means. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Paul stood before kings and governors speaking boldly, saying, I wish you were a Christian. Listen, would the world be a better place if people in governmental leadership had the Holy Ghost? Probably. But granted, I mean, a lot of us know people that have the Holy Ghost, and they're not awesome either, right? So, theoretically, it would be better. Would the world be a better place 
if everyone in it was filled with the Holy Spirit and trying their best to follow after the work of God? Absolutely. And just as Paul wished King Agrippa was saved, he too can hope and pray. We too can hope and pray that, that God would do a miraculous work in, 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 in our government, that God would do a miraculous work in our school systems, and God would do a miraculous work in these things. I, I'm not against that. But the establishing of God's kingdom in Acts never was determined by King Agrippa's faith or lack thereof. And God's kingdom being established today is not dependent on any king of this world. See, whether a Republican is in office or a Democrat is in office, God's kingdom will be established. If Satan himself is voted into the White House tomorrow, the Bible still speaks and says the gates of hell will not prevail. Understand something very clearly. Gates are not offensive weapons, they're defensive. And for too long, the church has allowed hell to convince you that they have any offensive firepower. Gates are a defensive weapon. Hell has nothing but intimidation and fear. But can I tell you, when a Holy Ghost-filled young man or young woman begins to say, why am I allowing a defensive entity to have any offensive power in my life? Things will begin to change. We must love and have reverence for the law and the word of God, but in our desperate pursuit of holiness and righteousness, we can't abandon the rod or misplace our manna. If all we possess is knowledge of the word, but we never minister that word, and the ministry is never validated through works of the spirit, we become Pharisees, quoting scriptures for our own elevation, knowing the word while never ministering it. We relegate God and his will to rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. We become professional members of a local church, but never productive members of the body of Christ. Hebrews 4 and 12 says, For the word of God is alive, and it is active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. See, in our Western mindset, we take this scripture and we, we believe that what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is a weapon of war. We can take a weapon of war. Eastern culture views this scripture differently because they, they understand that Paul was, was going all the way back to the book of Leviticus. Where that priest, when he took that sacrifice and he would lay that sacrifice at the altar, he would take a two-edged sword, a blade, sharper than any other blade in Israel. And he would begin to butcher and cut with precision and with intentionality. The sacrifice that was going on to the altar of God. And we've turned the Bible into a weapon to kill rather than a weapon to clean and to trim. We as the church, if we're not careful and intentional, we can become so enamored by the pursuit of our own righteousness that we lose sight of what righteousness really is. See, we believe righteousness is a person that is morally right justifiable, virtuous, a very good person, excellent. Everything is about us. I am righteous. I look righteous. I sound righteous. But the Jews don't view righteousness in this way. They define righteousness simply as to be able to do for someone else that which they cannot do for themselves. Their righteousness is outward. It's others focused. And when we understand this idea, the dichotomy between outward-centered righteousness and, and inward-centered righteousness, it makes Matthew 5.20 so much more important and so much more critical in the message I'm preaching today. G uh, Matthew 5.20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness 
surpasses that of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The scripture is not saying unless you become more holy than the Pharisees. It's not saying as long as, long as you dress nicer than the Pharisees. As long as you conduct yourself and talk better than the Pharisees. No, your righteousness, until your ability to do for others that which they cannot do for themselves surpasses these Pharisees, you're just like them. This example of true righteousness can be found in 1 John 2 and 1. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the one who did for me that which I could not do for myself. The one that did for the addict that which they could not do for themselves. The one that did for the depressed that which they could not do for themselves. Jesus Christ, the one that did for the liar, the cheater, the violent, the scoffer. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one that did for me that which I could never do for myself. And God help us if we become so inwardly focused and selfish that we've received such an incredible gift that in return we do not extend the same opportunity to others because their chains look different than yours. I have a baby girl coming in September, and I'm going to tread lightly because I, I really don't want to offend. But I have a baby girl coming in December, and I'm going to hurry. I'm sorry. And I get it. I'm only 31. I'm not like, so to some of you, you're like, man, that guy's old. I'm not that old. Like 31, the closer I get to 40, the younger 30 seems, and I'm sure it'll be the same when I hit 40. But I get it. Like, the world we live in is so vastly different than even the one I grew up in. I get, I get the, the battles, and I get the spiritual things that are occurring in our world. I get it. I get that, that perversion is running rampant. I get it. Like, I get that, that, that rebellion and witchcraft and sorcery. I get all of these things are are running rampant. But can I just tell you that just because someone else's chains look differently than your chains, they all lead to the same place. I remember a few years ago, and I don't keep up with this, but a few years ago they had the Grammys uh, on. And, <laughs> you know, I see all kind of people, uh, Christian people, like super diehard, love them, tweeting about the Grammys, okay? And then all of a sudden, they decide at the Grammys to have, like, a bunch of people, a bunch of same-sex couples get married while they sing a song. And everybody lost I get it. I know what the Bible says about homosexuality. I'm not here to preach about that. However, <laughs> I didn't see any of these Christians complaining or rising up when what one album of the year was a song called Get Lucky, in which the words are, I'm up all night to get some, I'm up all night to get lucky. A song that just promotes drug abuse, fornication, riotous living, no problems. But the second something that you might not deal with, now you have a virtue signal target. <laughs> now you have something you can point to to say, well, I don't, I don't struggle with that, so here's my opportunity to stand up and rise above it and point things out that are wrong. Meanwhile, I have all these skeletons in my own closet. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying, if, if your school, if your churches are going to receive the revival, I believe the word of God promises it's going to take us stepping across what we feel comfortable doing and saying, listen, I, I know I don't get it. I, I know I don't deal with what you deal with. 
But I know a God that does. It says we do not have a relationship with the high priest that is not touched with the feeling of our infirmities. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why did he do that? That we might become the righteousness of God. God did not merely save you from your sins so that we could criticize those who were bound by other sins. He set us free so that we could become the hand of righteousness. The hand of God that does for others that which they cannot do for themselves. We all have a calling and a directive to be the arm of God, reaching out to the people in our schools, our junior highs, our high schools, our colleges, our work, our families. The tablets of stone, the law, Aaron's rod, the ministry of that word, and the pot of man, a supernatural operation, all important, all needed, all required to be a vessel operating at full capacity. And if either one of these things is missing, your entire walk with God will be out of balance. If you're so focused on being spiritually used and you never crack the Bible open to read what it says, you're off balance. If all you want to do is, is beat people over the head with the scripture, but you never minister the word, you're off balance. If all you ever do is want to try to lay your hands on people and see them get out of wheelchairs, but you never pray and never read your Bible, you're off balance. And this was the misunderstood religious experience for the children of Israel that they dealt with for hundreds of years their hearts growing colder and colder, so distant, in fact, that upon their return from Babylonian captivity, they didn't even say the name of God. They had knowledge and reverence of the law, but there was no ministry, and they had forgotten the manna. That is until Jesus steps on the scene. In a manger in Bethlehem laid the fullness of the deity bodily, rectifying the mistake of abandoning the rod and misplacing the manna. Jesus Christ, man in flesh, God in flesh, would be what the Ark of the Covenant was in years past. The container of God himself, possessing the word of God, the ministry of the word of God, and the demonstration of the power of the word of God. And in the 33 years of life, his three years spent ministering, Jesus would be a shining example of what each one of us is meant to be today. Because just as the Ark of the Covenant was to contain the law, the rod, and the manna, so too did Jesus Christ. Containing the law as made evident by his knowledge of the word, by his own admission in Matthew 5, 17, coming to fulfill the law. Containing the budding rod of Aaron as made evidence by his willingness to not only know that word, but to minister that word. And that ministry was made valid by the pot of manna, demonstration through signs, miracles, and wonders. The word of God, the ministry of the word, and the demonstration of the power of God, this threefold cord that cannot be broken. But see, this isn't where the message ends. Upon the completion of Jesus' ministry, and his resurrection from the grave, he spoke one last time to his followers in Mark 16. And he said unto them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he that, is believe, that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If any of them drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick. They will see them recover. And then after the Lord spoke unto them, he was received into heaven, sitting on the right hand of God. Jesus telling them to know the word, to minister the word, and to participate. And supernatural demonstration. Preach the gospel to every creature. Let me just say this, because I think it's prevalent in the world we're living in. Um, it doesn't say preach the gospel to every man or woman. Every creature. 
I know, I get it, it's quiet. Whew. Bing. I get it, the world we live in. Some of, the, some of the stuff that's happening, it's a big hot button issue is, you know, men wanting to be men, women wanting to be women. I get it. It's, I don't get it either. I'm not, like, I get it. But I think Jesus, being Jesus, he knew what we would do if it said man or woman. Well, God, they identify as non-binary. Your Bible, the Bible says, preach the gospel to men and women. Jesus said, fine, preach to every creature. I don't care if they identify as a goat. Jesus has preached the gospel to anyone who will listen. And you know what he tells them to do if they don't listen? Not fight. Not burn things down. Not pick it. You pick yourself up. You dust your feet off. And you find somebody that will. I'm not telling you that every interaction you have with people will be easy. Chances are 99.9 of them will be very, very difficult. But what I am telling you is Jesus gives us the blueprint. Jesus was rejected far more than we were. Jesus, Jesus preached and performed a miracle, and 5,000 people got up and said, that was cool. Let's get out of here. Got to the point where Jesus said, even to his closest friends, y'all going to leave too. Preach the gospel to every creature. And it says that they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming their word with miracles, signs, and wonders. And this is the same commandment Jesus is giving today as we all stand, the musicians come. That it is time for us to go into this world. We cannot do anything about the time that you were born in. This is the time that God chose to have you on the planet. And it is also time that we go into this world, the one that we live in. Not only knowing the word, but ministering the word. And then having that ministry validated by miracles, signs, and wonders in the operation of the Spirit. See, the enemy cannot destroy God's church. He, can, he cannot defeat God's church. All he can do is convince you that he's winning, and he isn't. The church will be triumphant. Don't let Satan showboat his way into your mind or into your soul and plant seeds of fear and doubt. But see, what he can do is attempt to make you unbalanced by convincing you that there is no need for the law. That's old-fashioned. Or... There is no need for the budding rod of Aaron. That's weird. Don't, don't go talk to that person about the Bible. I know, I know you feel it in your spirit to go talk to that person at the school. Don't do that. That's weird. Don't do that. Or have you abandoned the, the pot of manna? God can't really heal cripples. God doesn't really heal cancer. And we as the body of Christ, both corporately and individually, when we allow ourselves to get spiritually unbalanced, we will fall. But hear me now, if we can get back to the example set by Jesus Christ, upholding the law of God, pursuing holiness and purity, and then we take that law and that word and go beyond just knowing it, and now we minister it. And when we go beyond just ministering, we see that ministry validated by demonstrations of the Spirit. You get to be a part of the people Jesus spoke about in John 14, where he says, not only will you do the things that I have done, but even greater things will they do. We being the containers of the Holy Spirit now, we are the New Testament representation of what the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant was being tasked to carry the word, the rod, and the manna. I believe that God is ready and positioning the church to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like we have never seen. But I need you to believe it. I believe that we are going to see things happen that we have never seen. 
It's going to be things so powerful that no man can take credit. I'm, I'm believing that in your schools, in your jobs, in, 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 in the places that you work, wherever it is that you're operating and ministering, I'm believing that God is going to put us in position with people that are so far from God, there is no way they made it here lest it be by God. Jesus performs a miracle of feeding 5,000 people with some loaves and fish. He sends the disciples to go and gather up all the, the loaves and fish. There's only five loaves, two fish. And they gave it to Jesus, and Jesus blessed it and said, go and feed. Jesus was responsible for the multiplication and the miraculous, but they were responsible for the mobilization. Too many of us at times in our lives are trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do, God? What is my calling in life? God, do you want me to be a pastor? Do you want me to be a foreign missionary? God, do you want me to be a worship leader, a musician? God, what do you want me to do? And we make these plans in our mind. Uh, Y'all, I'm talking to you from right here. We make these plans in our mind, in our heart, that we believe is the will of God, but life doesn't happen the way you think it's gonna happen. Maybe you are called to be a pastor. Maybe, maybe one day you will be on the foreign mission field. Maybe one day you'll be up here leading in worship. But no matter your opportunity to preach or minister or sing or, or perform or lack thereof, no matter what those things, no matter, no matter whether you have those opportunities or not, there, is, there are some things that, that no one can take from you. And that is the word, the rod, and the manna. Thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that it changes and impacts your life for days to come. If you would like to connect with us further, give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash Church, or just search Centerpoint Pentecostal Church on Facebook. If you would like to join one of our services in person, the service times and address are in the podcast description. Thank you and God bless, and we hope to see you on the next episode.